I'll be talking about more than just the Benjamins. Welcome to Fintech Beat, where finance, technology, and policy come together. I'm your host, Chris Brummer, and the future of finance is now. Having first experienced the novel coronavirus, Asia has been a laboratory of experimentation for not only public health, but also economic responses to the pandemic. And a key component to this experimentation has been the deployment of innovative financial tools by both the government and the private sector that are themselves sparking or accelerating structural changes in finance and society at large, changes that may be harbingers to come for the rest of the world. And for us here at FintechBeat, we think it's worthwhile to hit the road again or at least virtually, to get some perspective as to what's going on on the other side of the world and to compare and contrast these developments to what we're seeing in the United States today. And in that vein, I'm delighted to have onto the show Douglas Arner. Now, Douglas is the Carey Holdings Professor of Law at the University of Hong Kong, and he's a co-author of a forthcoming study on the future of the international regulation of digital finance an issue of special concern as COVID-19 quite literally rewrites the rules of the international financial system. Douglas, thanks for making it onto the show. Thanks, Chris. I guess I should start off with how COVID is impacting the people of Hong Kong. Uh, What are you seeing? How is the virus impacting movement, and what's the overall impact on the island? Cafe Pacific last week, one day, flew 500 passengers compared to a normal day, which would be in the tens of thousands. You know, the, the travel numbers are, are there's no tourism. Uh, basically, retail is gone. Um, most sort of activity is, is, is sort of wiped out. Um, so no, the economic impact, if anything, may be somewhat worse because it's going on and on. Um, the impact in the sort of white collar space is less. And certainly if we look at many of, uh, quite a few of the fintech businesses, those in e-payment, uh, or in things like markets, trading, asset management, they're actually up doing record levels of business. Um, but, you know, from the standpoint of, of the wider economy, it's pretty much the same sudden stop that everyone else is seeing, uh, except that our sudden stop probably started a bit earlier than everyone else. You know, we've just released an episode with the Connecticut-born CEO of an e-commerce platform in China who was making a similar observation. So, to pick up on that conversation, maybe you can walk us through briefly why it is uh, fintech and e-commerce firms are standing to benefit and how dynamics in China and Hong Kong may differ from those in the United States. If we look at the impact in China and mainland China over the past three months, um, basically um, all of the digital services, particularly the big techs, are all up substantially over that period. Um, and so what you see over a bit of time is that people move 
ever more towards sort of contactless payments, et cetera, to the extent um, that they hadn't already done so, uh, if possible. Uh, and also, to the extent that you have people working at home for an extended period of time, those who continue to have jobs or income, part of their time uh, will be buying things or investing in things. And so e-commerce businesses, uh, as well as things like, yeah, uh, trading services, those are doing well. And I guess timing-wise, in the Hong Kong context, there have been a number of new sort of virtual banks rolling out uh, over the past year. I guess about a year ago, we had, uh, not quite a year, but last year, we had nine licenses given out for, for virtual banks. Uh, and now a number of those are launching. Uh, and they're, I think, picking up quite well in the context of customers. If we look at the mainland, really everything on the big tech side. Uh, and it's the same thing that you're starting to see uh, in the US and you'll see everywhere else, which is that e-commerce and online payments become essentially essential services. Essential services for sure. But is uh, this trajectory in China, um, in, in, in the mainland, the same as that in Hong Kong or something different? I think in the context of mainland China, it's something entirely different. That basically with the entire country effectively locked down for the better part uh, of, of two months, that essentially people basically lived via e-commerce and online payments. So what I mean by essential services is that's food, that's healthcare, that's everything. Uh, and so um, Tencent, Alibaba in particular, were already immense. Uh, and what this has done is it has just reinforced that. Which sounds a little like Amazon. Amazon was, was comparable. And I think what is happening with Amazon there now is quite comparable to what happened in the mainland, particularly with Alibaba. Uh, you know, and it's something that is going to be a very interesting, it's something that, that you see out of almost any crisis like this is the larger firms with more financial resources tend to survive and take over the weaker ones. Um, you have a sort of shakeout, a sort of consolidation, and that's seems to be the likely path that you're having here as well, so that the big are getting bigger. And from the standpoint of governments, obviously government is taking a much bigger role all over the world as a result of the situation, but they're very often having to partner with big tech companies in order to achieve what it is that is being done. Are you seeing that in, in Hong Kong as well and, and the region, or is this really a, a China story? More of a China story because Hong Kong, we can still go to restaurants. We can still go to grocery stores. So everything is not e-commerce. So Hong Kong had been behind in the e-commerce curve because we had such uh, an amazing sort of retail scene, which meant that it was actually quicker just to pop out to one of the seven Louis Vuittons than it was to try to order something online. Um, if you've got a store that's 10 minutes away, why not just go there? Um, 
And so that meant that e-commerce has had a very slow takeoff in Hong Kong. This has definitely accelerated that. But the fact that people can still go to shops, go to grocery stores, et cetera, means that you don't have the same 100% lifeline reliance on e-commerce that you did in the mainland. And so e-commerce in the mainland was already more developed because of essentially the spread out nature of um, the country, the cities, the travel times, et cetera, made it all much easier to deal with things. But from the standpoint of essentially surviving when you can't leave your house, e-commerce becomes essential. And so that has driven it forward. And I think you're seeing very much the same sort of process uh, in the U.S. with Amazon. Within the e-commerce space, obviously, you know, how money passes hands metaphorically or passes accounts is really important. So so when you think about financial technology in its pure sense, not, not necessarily a fintech firm, but just financial technology, have you seen any innovation either on the governmental side in China or in a way that sort of distinguishes itself from uh, the response mechanisms that you're sort of living and experiencing in Hong Kong? And similarly, on the on the private side, on the innovation side, what are you observing again um, in Hong Kong and the mainland as it pertains to financial technology? Yeah, I think if we look, Hong Kong and the mainland are, are, are really very, and mainland China are really different stories. And I think for a lot of reasons, the mainland is often uh, a more interesting story. Um, if we look at this sort of crisis. The first thing uh, is basically a recognition that it's not fundamentally a financial crisis, but that the financial system plays an essential role in trying to reduce the health, human, and economic impact. And secondarily, that we need to reduce the impact of the health and economic impact on the financial sector to avoid having uh, essentially a reinforcing circle. Now, core to all of that really is the payment system. In other words, how can one get payments where they need to go in the most efficient sort of manner? And I think that that's something that if we look at both Hong Kong and the United States, neither is doing particularly well. Um, I'm expecting my roughly $1,200 US check, 10,000 Hong Kong dollars from the Hong Kong government to arrive in October, November. So, you know, that's mailing a check that I have to fill out a form to get. That's not exactly innovative or high tech. That's very much um, what you're seeing in the context of the U.S. If we look at where I think the interesting issues are, from the standpoint of a country, what do you have available to make these things work? And I think uh, if we look at, at China, they obviously had um, Alibaba and Tencent with all of those frameworks, which meant that they could immediately turn in the context of everything they were doing to reliance on those. Uh, in other cases, not necessarily. So I think one very interesting experiment um, Malaysia did in January, Malaysia basically to kickstart e-payment, 
they did an experiment where essentially they transferred something like 40 Malaysian ringgit, which is not very much, about $10, $15, to every person in the country. And they did that via a consortium of a small group uh, of e-wallet providers and electronic payments providers. So I think what you're really looking for from the standpoint of trying to address first, say, a lockdown, second, the sort of health issues, third, directed funding in terms of individuals and small businesses, as well as financial support to the healthcare system, is basically looking to see what you have in the context of your electronic payment system and making the best of it. And I think that the countries which have systems of essentially interoperable national electronic payment systems of some form, uh, whether those are ecosystems like the Tencent or Alibaba framework, whether they're like Go, Grab, uh, like Grab and Gojek, uh, and similar in the context of Malaysia, whether they're like uh, UPI in the context of India or the single European payments area in the EU, these sorts of electronic payments give governments a lot more tools to be able to direct financial resources most effectively towards dealing with the real problems. And and this is something that I think we're increasingly looking at from both directions. Those same sorts of tools also give methods potentially to monitor behavior, uh, monitor health considerations, monitor individuals. And I think that's something that as we come out of this crisis is going to be a big concern. We may have to use a lot of tools in a lot of places in a lot of innovative ways that we haven't done before. The question is, how much of that are we going to roll back? One thing that you've observed is the fact that, um, number one, the countries throughout the region, throughout Asia, uh, are very different. They're diverse and um, you know, certainly are at different points of economic development. However, when you look at that payment infrastructure, that many of them, regardless as to sort of where they lie on that development curve, have made that one of their national priorities and, and, and that now in, in a time of crisis, they can leverage that infrastructure to channel resources where they feel that they need to. But one of the differences as to how that infrastructure is kind of layered and, and built out, and this gets back to something that you had mentioned earlier, has to do with whether or not it's the government sort of operating on its own kind of um, public infrastructure or is it the government really relying on private or, or quasi-private um, infrastructures in order to channel resources to some of their customers and clients, right? Are you noticing either regionally or within any particular countries as a result, COVID sort of changing the relationship between fintechs and the sort of legacy banking system? Um, or is it just an acceleration in most cases of what was already occurring? You've highlighted a, a number of really important things. Uh, certainly something um, that my colleagues, uh, Ross Buckley and Doug Zetsch and I have worked a lot on is this idea of what sorts of digital financial infrastructure is important to essentially support 
economic growth, the development of the financial system. And our sort of findings are that really the key is, is a system of digital identity, widespread bank or mobile money accounts, uh, open access electronic payments, which then provides the rails to deliver a wide range of different products and services, both public sector and private sector. And I think what we're seeing is that different governments have been moving in that direction internationally. In Asia, uh, particularly um, in, in India, but in developing countries uh, all around the world. And I think what we're now seeing uh, is a situation where governments, where they haven't done this, they need to be thinking about using the crisis to basically break through the barriers to getting interoperable electronic payment systems done. And I think at this stage, what matters the most is not necessarily incumbent fintech, big tech, it's scale. Who has the biggest scale? Is it a mobile phone company that can reach the majority of the population? If so, then that may be the methodology. Is it a big tech company that already has the reach? Is it a small number of banks like in Australia that basically cover the entire population? Is it the tax off that actually covers the entire population? Pension system. What is it that you have that actually covers the population? So I think the answer to the question is, yeah, it's really scale. Uh, and it's whoever has the biggest scale and reach that is going to be most useful from the standpoint of a government trying to deliver effective financial resource. And honestly, in most cases, that's unlikely to be the fintechs. It's more likely to be um, either some sort of national payment system. Uh, we see Brazil just launching a, a new national faster payment system, which is effectively going to be mandatory for all institutions above uh, a certain size. Um, or it's going to be the incumbents, uh, or it's going to be some sort uh, of telecoms company that has the reach. Although in China, you are also seeing the move towards the digitization of the yuan itself. Which, which, which raises interesting questions about how that would interface with, you know, the 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 Alipays and 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 the other sort of big tech uh, firms. Um, it, do you see uh, that project uh, transforming or, or or changing not only China but other parts uh, of the world? Yeah, you know, this is something that um, that my team's spending a, a lot of time and basically. Even in the context of the crisis, I think if we look at technology and finance, the sort of uh, the world before Libra and the world after Libra. Um, and after Libra, countries around the world have had to look at the impact of technology on financial services in a very different way. If anything, post-COVID-19, we're going to have to look at the impact of technology on economies and societies in very different ways. So I think since Libra, we've seen this increasing sort of move around the world of, of looking at options. Uh, and of course, 
uh, China announced late, you know, last year that it had largely finished the the design process um, for uh, a digital currency. We've more or less seen all of the specifications. Uh, it hasn't been rolled out yet, uh, but I think that's something uh, that is coming soon. I think our analysis is that the real game changer is going to be uh, when we see a major currency, central bank digital currency. Um, you know, regardless uh, of discussions around sort of private stable coins and the like, the real game changer is likely to be a digital yuan, a digital dollar, uh, a digital Swiss franc, uh, a digital pound. Uh, and I think that that sort of dynamic uh, is going to be very important going forward. Now, is the current crisis a time where countries are looking at this? Well, they're already looking at it. Many of them already had systems just about ready to roll out. So Brazil, I've been looking at a CBDC, decides that instead of going with an actual CBDC, it's better to go with a faster payment system, which actually meets the needs of its society and in the context of the current situation very well. And this, in my view, is what I think is important. If we're going to apply resources, how can we make an investment that will have a positive impact later on? Now, turning to the digital yuan, one of the biggest reasons behind that is, of course, the threat of an alternative uh, from a private company like Facebook or from another government emerging as a already questions uh, about over-reliance by China on the U.S. dollar uh, and the like. So that's been a, a long-term concern. But a secondary issue has been around the role of um, the big tech companies in uh, the Chinese financial system. And certainly uh, a long-term sort of battle back and forth about interoperability uh, between in particular, WeChat Pay uh, and Alipay. And of course, if the government is able to move forward with a digital currency, which then provides essentially the backbone on which those electronic payment systems operate, to a certain extent, it changes the power dynamics between the government, the central bank in particular, uh, and those companies. So, yeah, I think when we're looking at the idea of the digital yuan, we have to think of it both from uh, an international geopolitical perspective, but also from a domestic political perspective. Douglas, really interesting stuff. Thanks so much for joining the show and stay safe. Thanks, Chris. We've tried to keep a global outlook on this show even as the United States faces its own set of domestic crises that have kept, quite understandably, the eyes of the nation glued to national news. Now, this isn't easy, but it pays dividends, especially when comparing responses and challenges in order to understand a little more about one's own situation. And what Talking to Douglas reveals is not only how different China is from Hong Kong, but it also brings into stark relief 
just how much our own fintech policy responses will likely be as much a reflection of our own national uh, features, like our population, the geographic distances between one another, and the makeup of our legacy communications infrastructure, as it is about the unique features of the pandemic itself. As a result, pandemic fighting, fighting this virus, will also necessarily be as much a process of self-discovery as it is reinvention. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed the show, please be sure to subscribe on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And we'd love to get your feedback. If you'd like to get in touch, just hit me up at Chris Brummer DR. That's at C-H-R-I-S-B-R-U-M-M-E-R-D-R. We'd love to hear from you. Fintech Beat is produced by CQ Roll Call, a leader in nonpartisan political and policy news and analysis for more than 70 years. CQ Roll Call is part of Fiscal Note, a global technology and media.